Do you feel like a complete and utter Muppet? I'm sitting around reading law books on the weekend going, oh god, this is interesting. <laughs> they've, they've amended section 127. This was supposed to send you off on a good note, not a <laughs> thinking about climate change. You're listening to The Briefcase. Welcome to episode three. It is Friday, the 19th of August, 2022. I am Sarah, I'm your host, and I apologize in advance for my particularly raspy voice. I promise it's not COVID. It's just one of about a million things that my four-year-old has brought home from daycare, so that's great. And if anybody ever tells you that parenting isn't a fulfilling rewarding experience you tell them to cram it because it obviously is anyway come rain hail shine or upper respiratory virus the show must go on and so it is that time of the week where i get to ask the immortal question what's in the briefcase this week I ordinarily wouldn't be able to hit that register and I'm kind of loving it. So RSV, swings and roundabouts. Ah, this week is a good one. We have a personal injuries case that you won't forget in a hurry. And we also have our first installment of the Melrose Place of Law. That's right, buckle up, it's time for Strata. Have you checked out the website yet? Briefcasepod.com has all the links you'll need to all of our presenter socials. You can also sign up for the weekly newsletter, 100% no spam guarantee. It's time to keep up with Black Letter Law like never before. Kicking off with Steve Hurd, partner at Fisher Door Lawyers and accredited specialist in personal injuries. And remember, all the cases that we chat about are referenced in the show notes. So, Steve, what are we talking about today? Well, I, I mean, it's fairly topical at the moment because of a couple of recent decisions, but I thought we could talk about the doctrine of vicarious liability. Mm. Technically, the doctrine of vicarious liability is the imposition of liability for someone's tortious act onto another person who has seemingly done nothing wrong. The example that my team probably gets sick of me telling clients about is, let's assume you're employed as a forklift driver. Okay. Okay. Let's assume you're on that forklift, you're coming down an aisle, you come around the corner without watching where you're going and you run over another worker and break their leg. Right. That worker will turn around and sue your boss. And a court will turn around to the boss and say, yep, you're liable for what Sarah did. You employed her as a forklift driver. She was doing the very thing she was employed to do and making you money while you're doing that. So you've got to take the good with the bad and wear the fact that she ran over another worker. Right. That falls within the scope of employment and an employment relationship is one of the relationships that allows the finding of vicarious liability. Okay. If we think on the flip side then, or the converse, let's say you're on that forklift and you're having a really bad day. You get to the end of that aisle, Mm. you stop, you see a worker that you don't like. Oh, yes. You get off the forklift and you walk up and punch them in the nose and break their nose. How did you find out about that? (laughs) Sorry, continue. (laughs) I guess it's fair to say that the starting proposition is that a court is going to be reluctant to find your employer vicariously liable for your intentional criminal act. Right. You're not employed to go around assaulting people, you're employed to drive the forklift. Yes. Now the cases are addressing where the lines are blurred, and I think you'll you'll like this one Sarah, but um, we recently had the Court of Appeal in Queensland um, mm-hmm. called on to revisit this issue. Okay. Now this is a case involving a claim by the name of Mr Shockman. Mm-hmm. He was employed on Daydream Island. Right. And it was a term of his employment that he has to reside there. 
and the employer provides shared accommodation. Now, after Mr. Shockman starts working on the island and residing in the accommodation, to start with, he's on his own, but then shortly thereafter, he gets a roommate, Mr. Hewitt. Okay. Now, one night, um, Mr. Hewitt uh, is out drinking. Um, Mr. Shockman is home in the accommodation asleep, and he is woken around 3 a.m. by Mr. Hewitt coming in, and presumably because he ate something off and had an upset stomach, um, is then ill in the bathroom. Layman's terms, he spewed, okay. Mr. Shockman wakes to that, but doesn't appear to give it much attention and falls back to sleep. So then um, some half an hour later, unfortunately, he is awoken because he's choking. He is choking because Mr. Hewitt is standing over him, urinating on his face. I, I, am, <clears throat> I am shocked by that. And I'm sure Mr. Shockman was also. Equally shocked. Yes, if not more. <laughs> I'll give him that. He was probably more shocked. Now, what stemmed from that is something that I actually had to do a bit of research on this because I'd not heard of it before, but Mr. Shockman had what is called a cataplectic event. So it's where, in, in case um, you're as ignorant as I... If you can refresh my memory on what that means. Effectively, like a sudden loss of muscle tone or control or involuntary loss of your muscles. Right. Okay, so... Um, I don't profess to have any medical expertise or giving any medical advice, but almost, I don't know, like having a seizure or just complete loss of control yeah, of, right, your, okay. of your body, which then becomes quite a debilitating condition for him. He's quite severely impaired by reason of that. And all of it on the evidence seems to stand back to this incident with Mr. Hewitt. This traumatic event. This traumatic event at 3.30 in the morning. So fast forward, Mr. Shockman um, brings a claim against the owners of Daydream Island. Mm -hmm. And it was run on the basis that the owner of the resort was in breach of its primary duty of care to Mr. Shockman as his employer. Mm -hmm. And um, courts have long told us that the first port of call is you have to try and establish a primary breach or breach of a primary duty of care. Okay. If you can't establish a primary breach, then in the alternative, you look to try and establish vicarious liability. Okay. Now, at first instance and on appeal, the court said, well, there's no breach of a primary duty of care here. Um, there's effectively nothing that could have been done that would have uh, prevented Mr. Hewitt from perpetrating this act. Okay. So it was really argued on the basis that the employer should be held vicariously liable for Mr. Hewitt's actions. Now, Mr. Shockman argued that um, really he was accommodated there and had to be accommodated there in furtherance of his employment. And the resort owner, by placing Mr. Hewitt in such close proximity to him and forcing them both together, must wear the good with the bad. Mm. At first instance, um, and I think quite reasonably, dare I say it, his Honour Justice Crowe found that although the occasion for the tortious act arose um, from the shared accommodation, there was simply no connection between Mr. Hewitt's employment mm -hmm. and the intentional act or his, as I think Justice Crowe termed it, drunken misadventure. I think it probably goes beyond yeah. that, but yes. And found that there was uh, no basis for a finding of vicarious liability. Okay. We then come to the Court of Appeal, though, and the Court of Appeal, unfortunately, I'll say, did not agree. Um, and they went on to actually say that it was a term of Mr. Hewitt's employment that he resided in the accommodation, um, and more particularly in the room assigned to him. Um, the terms of his employment required him to take reasonable care that his acts did not adver adversely affect the health and safety of others. So... Oh, bam! There you go! That was the distinction. Yes. Um, so because there was an obligation that governed his employment and he was in accommodation provided as employer, they said that mm. it provided the very occasion and the employer is liable, vicariously liable. 
I mean, from, from a technical legal point of view, the starting point is always looking at who perpetrated the tortious act. Mm-hmm. And here, there would be a great claim against Mr. Hewitt. He perpetrated the tortious act. But of course, there's, um, you know, you've got to think of the age old adage, are you, is it going to be a case of getting blood out of stone if you try pursuing him? Of course. So you always look to whether there's someone with deep pockets behind him that you can point the finger at. So what's the takeaway? I think it's something where everyone needs to keep a watch on things at the moment because I'm sure um, there will be more decisions being handed down. Fantastic. Thank you, Steve, for joining us. Pleasure. Well, there you have it. Peeing into somebody's mouth at work. Grounds for vicarious liability since 2022. Oh yeah, it's time for Strata with the one and only Frank Higginson partner at Heinz Legal. If you're getting anything out of today's episode, remember to subscribe if you haven't already and to tell all your lawyer friends. Okay, so we're talking about Strata. Yep. For the uninitiated, what is Strata? It's really community, well, community title is what the legislation would be, Body Corporate and Community Management Act. So community title, is where you have a bunch of people tied together in a body corporate, which is really, you know, the the property law term for a company. Yes. Where you have, you know, a hundred unit holders, which are effectively the shareholders in this thing that's a body corporate that has a committee, which is like the board of directors. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a complete legislative framework for how all of those people interact and relate. I know this is probably going to be an ex- exceptionally offensive thing to say, but I had no idea, like when you drive past a block of units and you see on the the letterbox out the front, and there's a letterbox for the body corporate, that so much intrigue yep. can pass through that particular... That, that, little, that, that little slot. That absolutely. little slot. Yep. And there's more than 50,000 of these things in Queensland, right. probably verging on 53, 54 now. So roughly 550,000 strata lots. So they sort of average that eight to 10 strata lots per scheme. So obviously there's duplexes mm-hmm. um, with, and they're only common properties the driveway through to things like Q1 that have 580 odd lots in one big tower and volumetrics and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And I think the thing that makes it interesting or will always be there is, is people's homes. You know, in a commercial dispute, mm-hmm. you're acting for someone, I'm acting for someone. Our clients might have signed a contract to do something. You're saying, oh, you're 50. I'm saying, oh, you're nothing. Clients never see each other again. Mm-hmm. We argue on the correspondence, goes to court, blah. In these things, the nature of the disputes is usually a lot lesser. It's not about 50 grand. It's about someone smoking or about someone's dog barking. Mm-hmm. And they become so emotional, it's not funny. Because mm-hmm. quite often, it's the people living in the same units. They're living side by side and they're having these arguments. So you can't escape it. It's yeah. like an episode of Neighbours. Well, yeah, or I suppose um, you do Housewives of oh yes, uh, Housewives of Ascot, <laughs> yeah. um, but they're all trapped in the building, so it's like a bubble. You, you, it's a fishbowl, you can't escape, and you see these people, and you're trapped in a legal relationship with them by virtue of this body corporate. Yeah, and there's nowhere for them to get out. You can't leave. It's not like Thunderdome, you know, two minutes <laughs> one man leave. No, no, you're all still in there. The only way to leave is to sell. It actually really affects people's lives. Yeah, not trying to be. Bleeding hard about it like that, it really does. These decisions, and you know, so one of the, the meetings we had the RSPCA in to talk about what pets mean to people, and you know, like we're both pet owners, yeah, um, and they're wonderful creatures. But there's some buildings that completely unlawfully hold a stick over people's heads saying, This is a pet free building, you cannot have pets. When legally, you can't do that, is that right? Yeah, and that has been the case really since 1997. No way. 
Now the onus is reversed. So tenants can have pets unless a landlord makes an application to QCAT for an order that they can't have pets and the landlord needs them to justify why. No way! So, so basically it's a permissive pet society now for tenants, but you still then need to go get body corporate approval to doing that. And so body corporates might be more reluctant to do it in these pet free and in inverted commas buildings. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Anyway, what's the first decision you want to talk about? The allure decision. So all of these are referenced back to the name of the buildings. Okay. So um, there's the first rule of Strata Fight Club, um, <laughs> that we refer to them as building names. So in management rights, there's a code of conduct, so and, that, and that's in the legislation. Code of conduct says you've got to you know act in the best interest of the body corporate, not engage in misleading conduct, so on and so forth. Mm. So that's part one of this. Part two is lots of management rights businesses have agreements with the body corporate and there's a unit from which you run them. So the typical high rise behind that reception desk is a unit. So they go into that um, and then they've got the letting side of things, which is why they're greeting you to say, come and stay in unit 204 and check you in and all that sort of stuff. And the other part of a management rights business is usually they'll, they'll caretake the common property. The legislation creates is a mechanism for a body corporate to force a manager who's breached the code of conduct repeatedly to sell their management rights business. So basically, you, you've told us fibs, you've misled us. If the body corporate forces the sale of the management rights business mm-hmm. and there's a management rights unit associated with it, mm-hmm. it's really important that the whole package gets sold at the one time. What the legislation creates, and this is this section 116, mm. is an obligation for the person that owns the unit to say to the body corporate, if you force the sale of the management rights under these code of conduct provisions, we'll also sell the unit as part of that program. If you don't have one of those deeds in place that comply with section 116 and the unit is used for letting purposes, then, and this is this is what Alua decided, the letting agreement is of no effect. And that was air quotes was used around <laughs> no effect. Because up until this decision, we'd all been wondering what that actually meant. Like in terms of legal terms, you think void, mm. void ab initio, this got decided in Alua. And what the adjudicator in that case said is that of no effect means it doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. So it's effectively invalid. So this document you've signed is meaningless. And what had happened here that caused the grief was that that management rights business had been sold to a third party. What an adjudicator held was that the management rights was effectively over. And what they said is you can't sell and transfer an agreement that doesn't exist. So if, if there hadn't been a sale, the owner of the lot could have gone back and signed the document and we're all okay. Mm -hmm. But because it had been sold on, the whole thing comes collapsing down because the agreements also had cross default provisions in them. So if one comes to an end, so does the other. So that one doesn't exist. So that one doesn't exist and whoopee-doo. So in a management rights sense, I think probably the golden rules are, and this is a real big issue from a due diligence perspective now, you gotta make sure you go back through historical title searches and all that sort of stuff to make sure that if there ever was a separation of ownership post 2003, which is when these amendments commenced, yes. there needs to be one of those deeds in place for every single transaction that happened. Well, that's all we've got time for this week on The Briefcase. Thank you again to my fabulous guests. It's time to close her up. See you next time. I'm Sarah Kral and this is The Briefcase. Briefcase.